Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we look back at the 2022 Africa Women's Cup of Nations as South Africa won a first title and as Nigeria came only fourth. We ask whether this shows a shift of power in women's football on the continent. Also, we hear how South Africa brought in a mental skills coach for the tournament. So you want 11 players on the pitch fighting for each other and by developing resilience and togetherness, you make this happen. That's coming shortly, and as Man City play Liverpool in the Community Shield on Saturday, we assess the two teams' pre-season preparations, and we look at some of the big signings elsewhere, including Senegal centre-back Khalidou Koulibaly's move to Chelsea. But let's start at the 2022 Africa Women's Cup of Nations in Morocco as South Africa won the title for the first time, beating the host Morocco 2-1 in the final last weekend at a tournament where there was massive support for the home nation. Well, Nigeria, who'd won nine of the 11 editions up to this point, finished fourth, losing 1-0 to Zambia in the third-place match. Well, Banyana Banyana had lost four finals up to this point. Here's their coach, Desiree Ellis. It's been a long time coming. I think um, even me as a player, I got a silver in 2000 when we played the tournaments in South Africa. We lost to Nigeria. And a lot of coaches and players before, um, we've all tried, but today was really special. You know, when we walked out um, and we saw the crowd, I was not perturbed. I thought we played really, really well. I said maybe we'll keep the goals for the final, but the goals were so well taken, um, you know, and I think that the players were special today. You know, when we met in South Africa and I sat with the senior players, I asked them what their ambition was. Jermaine said we want to win AFCON. I said there's a small matter before that to qualify for World Cup. She said, aye, if we win AFCON, we don't have to worry about qualifying, we qualify. So from the word go, they had this ambition. and. I said we can only do it if we're united. We can only do it if we're together. Um, I think uh, we like to celebrate after we win. And this is going to be a big celebration and a long celebration. Because it's not just about us. Um, it's about the players that have come before. It's about the coaches that have come before. Um, the contributions they've made. And to win this um, WEFCON, the first one, it takes the monkey off our back. Um, and to go through the tournament unbeaten is even more special. We know there's a lot of challenges back home, but we're glad we put a smile on people's faces because our president, Dr. Jonan, always speaks about putting a smile on people's faces, and today I'm sure we did. I'm sure we did put that smile and uh, make them forget about the challenges. So, you know, we're just grateful and happy and blessed. and. And, and, and we thank God because of the opportunities that we've been given. We faced a lot of challenges here <clears throat> and God came through for us all the time. So we're really grateful and really blessed and uh, they fought. They put their, 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 their bodies on the line. Wow. It was, it was just amazing. Incredible champions of Africa. Wow. 
That's the South Africa women's coach Desiree Ellis. At long last, they are the champions of Africa in women's football. And uh, well, Ida, I guess you have to say that South Africa deserved it. Well, Steve, as we said last time out, deserved can be a very subjective word. But if we base it on their performance on the night, then absolutely they deserved it a hundred percent. And if the listeners will remember, we actually called it during the preview of the final when we said that the Banyana ladies, Steve, are professionals who are used to playing at the very highest levels. And you saw it. They were calm and they held their own in an atmosphere that definitely would have intimidated many. Steve, we talked about a record attendance of around 45,000. That was during the semifinal between Morocco and Nigeria. Well, this final was reported to have been at over 53,000 and you can guess majority of that being home fans. So that couldn't have been easy for the visitors. Also, the fact that South Africa killed off the game really without having to go to penalties, I think spoke loads to their confidence, to their belief and strategy on the night, you know. If they deserved it simply on their previous losses in the final, I don't think anyone can be the judge of that. But look, I can't imagine how strong they had to have been having lost in 2000, then eight years later, then in 2012, and again in 2018. Steve, their losses stretched as far back to when current coach Desiree Ellis was a player in the national team. So this was definitely one that was a long time coming for Banyana. And they will feel very deserving having gone through the pain of so many losses. This is a tournament that's been consistently won by record champions Nigeria with nine titles and Equatorial Guinea winning it twice and representing the only other winner other than the Super Falcons that was up until Saturday with South Africa. Steve, Banyana Banyana is the first new winner of the tournament since Equatorial Guinea in 2008, actually. The win was South Africa's second continental title after the men's team won the 96 Afghan, where, interestingly enough, actually, they also had to beat a North African team, but in that case, it was Tunisia. And coincidentally, it was thanks to a brace from one of the players. Hilda Magaya, the heroine of the night with a brace, and it was another double delight for South Africa as they also won the CAF Women's National Team of the Year that same night. And that award was presented to SAFA President Danny Yodan after the match. And uh, looking at this tournament as a whole, how much of a pivotal event was this, would you say, in terms of the power base in women's football in Africa? Nigeria finishing only fourth. Uh, they'd won nine of the 11 previous editions. The other two had been won by Equatorial Guinea. Uh, Zambia impressed and finished third, having been to the 2020 Olympics. And Morocco showing that North African teams can compete. And of course, South Africa finally breaking their jinx. Extremely pivotal, Steve. I mean, the tide has been changing for a while now. For a few years at least, you know, even going back to when Zambia toppled Cameroon for that sole ticket to the Olympics. While they've been doing extremely well, 
I actually still, Steve, wouldn't consider them a giant of the African game, at least just yet. They need a bit more time, a bit more consistency to do that, for me at least, you know. But look, have they disrupted things at the top? Absolutely. Would I consider them amongst the top teams in Africa? Sure. But have they reached giant level? Not yet. Even for Morocco, I would love to see them do what they did more and more, you know, outside of home comfort, outside of home advantage, to really consider them one of the top teams in the continent. Ghana, for example, didn't even make it to the tournament. And, you know, you can count it as a stroke of bad luck, you know, up against old rivals Nigeria and the qualifiers who bundled them out. But look, this was still a Wafkin without giants like Ghana. We've seen the likes of Nigeria lose more than once, you know, first at the Aisha Buhari tournament, then at the Wafkin. Once again, Steve, Things are definitely changing. It was actually the first time in a decade that Nigeria failed to finish amongst the top three. And South Africa, you see, finally cementing themselves at the very top. Something that many knew was coming and it would only be a matter of time. Yeah. Now, one thing that could have helped South Africa to win the title for the first time was the appointment of a mental skills coach. Now, Leanne Redding is a high-performance coach or mental skills coach tasked with improving individual and team performance. Uh, She spoke to South Africa's media officer, Sine Temba Mbata. So my first objective was to devise a plan or a guide to achieve the objective of qualifying for the, for the World Cup, which was the first objective, and then, of course, winning the African Women's Cup of Nations. And so the plan that I devised was creating a set of values which would define the culture of the team, which in turn drives the performance of the team. So the values would be crucial in driving a, a winning culture, and the values that were decided on were the values of humility, effort, ambition, teamwork, and respect. I also thought that it was very important important at the outset for the players to determine a higher purpose for themselves than just winning. And that purpose or cause would be personal to each player. Um, and what they would do would be to dedicate their efforts in the competition to that person or that cause which is also a means of taking a bit of pressure off them, the pressure of that constantly being told, we have to win, we have to win. How has it been for you working with this team and the players? So I came into the team quite late. I came in the day before the first game. It's been an incredible experience. The team welcomed me immediately, which really helped, and and responded really well to all the work that I did with them. So for me, once in a lifetime experience and incredible. With regard to your sessions, how are your uh, sessions structured with the players? Because we know like um, during, uh, on days when the players are not, it's not game day, Mm -hmm. uh, you have these sessions with the players and some staff members. How do you structure your sessions? So they're really divided into team sessions and then smaller group sessions and individual sessions. So the team sessions essentially focused on the values and how to win 
by applying those values. So maybe I can give you an example if you'd like. So if we take, a, for example, our value of effort, effort really emphasized the importance of grit, which is in a nutshell, essentially persistence, courage, determination, and a refusal to back down in the face of adversity, because you will face adversity. That is a, that is a given. So you want 11 players on the pitch fighting for each other and by developing resilience and togetherness, you make this happen. So those were the, the, the team sessions, depending on which values were being discussed. That's how the team sessions were conducted. Smaller group sessions and individual sessions were really to help the players deal with the many challenges that they face on and off the pitch. Issues such as selection, injury, doubts about being good enough, anxiety, and a number of other issues. So those were dealt with in a smaller, more contained environment. I'm someone with a sports psychology background, um, and I understand the importance of psychology in, in football because uh, players deal with a lot. They are humans at the end of the day. There's a lot of pressure, pressure from within the team and then there's pressure, external pressure that comes from the supporters, uh, the, the country, you know, you want, you just want to make the country proud. But uh, we may understand it, you and I may understand it, but how important are sports psychologists in football? So I think extremely important because Football is not only a physical, technical and tactical game, it's also a psychological one. You have to help the players understand their thinking so that they can optimize the many decisions that they make on the pitch and really get them to, or really help to get them to focus on the right things at the right time because there's so many distractions. And that's how you get them to perform at their best. The other thing which you've alluded to is players have to produce consistent results in a very intense environment and quite an unforgiving environment. So they often feel that they're only valued when they're producing great results. And I think that the psychologist or the, and I'm not, I'm a high performance mental skills coach, can be of great support in this, in this regard. So you would advise more teams to actually establish the culture of psychologists, high-performing coaches, and, you know, to just help the players in this regard. Absolutely. And I think it's also important because the high-performance coach or mental skills coach or psychologist is neutral. They are therefore able to speak to the players. It can be a great source of communication between the players and the, and the technical staff. So the players feel more comfortable with somebody that is neutral and feel that they can actually voice what they're feeling, say how they're feeling. And I think that is crucial. So that's South Africa's mental skills coach, Leanne Redding, who was appointed just before the Women's Africa Cup of Nations finals, uh, speaking there to the Banyana Banyana media officer, Sine Temba Mbata. Uh, so uh, what do you make of this, Saida? Well, Steve, we all know how big of an aspect mental health in sport has become, at least over the last few years. I mean, we've recently seen some of the biggest international athletes of their time prioritize their well-being over the competition. And the situation now seems to be one of teams should either get with it 
embrace mental health as a serious aspect of sport or simply get left behind. So many teams, Steve, even in Africa, have taken this seriously. I'll give an example of Kenya, who also hired a sports psychologist for the national team ahead of the Tokyo Olympics. Steve, athletes need an outlet because the pressures they face are actually comparable to nothing else. And once again, to reiterate on an earlier point that things are indeed changing and Sport is now being viewed from a holistic approach that just doesn't involve the physical. Yeah, sure. Well, certainly making the most of the advancement in new methods. And well done to South Africa, winning the Women's Africa Cup of Nations for the first time. Thanks, Ida. This is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And still to come, Stuart on Kalidou Koulibaly's move to Chelsea. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA and you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download the app, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Let's go to social media now. Last week we asked which of the newly promoted teams in the English Premier League do you think will do best? With the new season just a week away now, we asked out of Fulham, Bournemouth and Nottingham Forest, the new teams, which of them do you think will do best and why? And we start in Nigeria and Mus Baudin Idris Abiola says, I predict that Nottingham Forest will be the best team amongst those three that just got promoted. They have better players than the other two teams, says Mus Baudin. Lotana Eric Nwaku is also in Nigeria and says Forest will do amazingly great. They've made a lot of good signings, the likes of Dean Henderson, Jesse Lingard, Taiwo Awani and so on, says Lotana. Awani, the Nigerian striker, and we'll hear from him on next week's show. Chukuma Anuanye in Nigeria says Forest are busy building a strong team. For me, they're not ready to go back to the championship for the next season or two. I think Fulham can also do well, says Chukuma. Johnson Williams is in Turkey. Johnson saying Forest and Bournemouth will stay up. And Kisingu Mwavulika says Nottingham Forest because of their history. Uh, Muller Portugues also looks at Nottingham Forest history, saying I'm going with the two-time Champions League winners. Uh, yes, Nottingham Forest winning what was then the European Cup in 1979 and 1980. Uh, Lifu Godwin says Nottingham Forest will be like Brighton and establish their place in the top flight. Leigh Gassi is in Ghana and says that Forest will stay up. Their squad looks okay to me. And Stanley Rodriguez says Nottingham Forest, of course, because they're coming like a thunderstorm. Uh, JJ is in Doha in Qatar saying Forest will be the best because they're there to show how to play English Premier League well. Uh, but then lots of people saying Fulham will do best of the three newly promoted teams. They include Agar Paul, Mason Junior Paul in Sudan, and Joe in the Gambia, and Landrine Sentier in Cameroon. Uh, Cobby Stone in Ghana says uh, Fulham because they made me win a bet. And uh, Julanding Chelsea Jaune says, I'm going for Fulham because they were in the Premier League for so many years and uh, things do fall apart for them. They go up and down, but they've got the experience now. And they have made life difficult for big clubs like Chelsea, Arsenal and Manchester United in the past, says Julian Ding in the Gambia. Uh, then uh, those who fancy Bournemouth to do well include Danga World Dowdy in Kenya, saying Bournemouth will get four points from Chelsea and they'll finish 13th, says Danga. 
Sideko Suno in the Gambia says Bournemouth will be the best offensive team in the Premier League because they have the quality of players and good experience. A bright Maromo in Zimbabwe says Bournemouth are here to stay. I think a bright one of many people here in Zimbabwe excited that Bournemouth have a Zimbabwean left back in Jordan Zemura. A bright Matewe in Malawi also goes for Bournemouth and a Kenneth Innocent in Uganda says Bournemouth because they've been in the league before and they were performing well. And finally, on a not very hopeful note, Stanley Amui in Ghana says it's clear all three of them are going back down to the championship. Well, thanks very much for all of those comments. Always great to hear from you and a great to talk football here on Planet Sport Football Africa. Show brought to you by Passion for Sport. Well, let's go to Stuart Weir in the UK now. So the new Premier League season almost here already. And a Man City play Liverpool in the Community Shield at the King Power Stadium in Leicester on Saturday. Uh, this the annual curtain raiser where the Premier League champions meet the FA Cup champions from last season. Uh, so what do you think of the preparations and signings for these two teams ahead of the new season, Stuart? Well, I mean, as you say, it's the traditional curtain raiser uh, being played in Leicester because Wembley's not available because it's hosting the Women's uh, European Championship. Now, Arsene Wenger always used to count this as a trophy to be won, but really it's a pre-season friendly and it raises money for good causes. But what adds to the intrigue about this year's game is that it features without question the two best teams in England. Manchester City won the Premier League by one point from Liverpool. Both league games ended 2-2 between them last season and the FA Cup semi-final 3-2. Both teams lost to Real Madrid in the Champions League so there's really nothing to choose between them you might say. Now in terms of transfer activity City have added Erling Haaland and Calvin Phillips as well as Stefan Ortego as their backup goalkeeper. But the players leaving City have included Fernandinho, uh, Gabriel uh, Jesus and Alexander Sinchenko. Now, Haaland is potentially a great signing, but it will depend how quickly he settles into Premier League football and it's not a given that he will become a prolific goalscorer from day one. Liverpool have lost Sadio Mane, a proven Premier League goal scorer, and Divrock Origi, who scored a few valuable goals for them as well. They've signed Darwin Nunes, the Uruguayan striker who scored a goal a game in Portugal last season, but Portugal is not the Premier League. And Liverpool's only other signings are two teenagers, uh, Cavalho, a Portuguese player from Fulham, and a fullback Ramsey from Scotland. And it's hard to see either of those teenagers making much impression immediately. Liverpool, of course, lost 4-0 to Manchester United in a meaningless pre-season friendly. But overall, I would say that the transfers have made no great difference to the strength of the two squads. You could say that if Erling Haaland can hit the ground running or hit the ground scoring, and if Liverpool end up missing Sadio Mane more than they expected, that would tilt the balance towards Manchester City. And certainly City are the champions and the team to catch this season. Well, it should be an interesting game. And uh, Stuart, what about the other big teams in terms of signings and preparations? Uh, one huge African transfer is the Senegal centre-back Kalidou Koulibaly moving to Chelsea from Napoli in Italy. That is a fascinating signing and... Alongside Raheem Sterling, it's the only 
business really that Chelsea have done so far. And remember that Chelsea lost Andreas Christensen and Antonio Rudiger in the summer, so they are a bit light at the back. They've got two youngish fullbacks, Rhys James and Ben Chilwell, but their other defenders, uh, Cesc Apilicetto, Marcus Alonso, and Thiago Silva are all on the wrong side of 30. Thiago Silva, a great player, but he's 37. And I actually read this week that both uh, Pilicetto and Marcus Alonso would be quite keen to leave. But the only thing that surprises me about the signing of Koulibaly is that they didn't go for someone younger. Born of Senegalese parents in France, he opted to play for Senegal, started his career in France, followed by Belgium, and then spent eight years in Italy, playing for Napoli, where he played 236 league games, scored 13 goals. One of his nicknames in Italy was The Wall, a reference to the difficulty in getting past him. He played for Senegal in the 2018 World Cup, 2022 AFCON, where he scored one of the decisive penalties in the final. He's made over 60 appearances for his country, in Italy, he has been voted the best defender in 2019 and four times chosen among the best 11 players in Serie A. And he helped Napoli win the Coppa Italia in 2020. Now, one assessment I read of him said he was large, aggressive, quick, physically strong, yet elegant, recognised for his aerial power, anticipation, positioning, tackling, character, technique and passing ability as a defender. Now, Steve, I'm sure there's something he can't do, but that's pretty impressive. And also, while he was in Napoli, he spoke out several times about racism in Italian football, calling on the authorities to tackle it and give offenders a life ban from watching football. And he's also been involved in several activities to help poor people, both in Italy and in his native Senegal. A fine player, a great man, but I just have this one doubt that $40 million seems an awful lot of money to spend on somebody who's 31. Yeah, so we'll see how Koulibaly does. Certainly a few years back, he was one of the most highly valued defenders in the whole of Europe. And uh, Stuart, uh, what about Christian Eriksen's move to Manchester United? Well, we've been talking for a while about Frankie de Jong at Barcelona being Manchester United's main target, but this never really got him. They may still do. Eriksen is 30, started his career with Ajax, spent six and a half years at Tottenham, where he was recognised as one of the best midfield players in the Premier League, if, if not the world. He was surprisingly then sold to Inter Milan, where he played for a season and a half. You may remember that during the 2021 European Championship, he suffered a cardiac arrest during a game, almost died, and under Italian football health rules, he was no longer allowed to play in Serie A. Ericsson is Danish, as is the Brentford manager Thomas Frank, who persuaded Ericsson to join Brentford on a one-season contract. He also spent a period training at Ajax, under Ten Hag, which is a a connection which may have been partly responsible for him moving to Old Trafford. And I think he could be a really exciting acquisition for Manchester United. Now, we previously mentioned how they had signed Tyrrell Malassia, a 22-year-old Dutch international who now gives them three left-backs alongside Alex Telles and Luke Shaw. They've also just signed Lisandro Martinez from Ajax, 
Den Haag's old club. He's a 24-year-old Argentinian defensive midfield player. But there are also persistent rumours that Ronaldo wants to leave. So discussions are going on. Manchester United are keen to keep him, but we'll have to see what happens there. And finally, see, just following on from the successful women's AFCON, England have reached the final of the Women's European Championship. Now, I recognise that England's fortunes may not be a high priority for African listeners, but what should excite us all is that the opening game of the tournament was played in front of 70,000 people at Old Trafford. There was a full stadium for this week's semi-final. The final will be at Wembley, and all the games are on live on terrestrial television. It's an amazing opportunity of showcasing women's football, which potentially will have a lasting impact on the women's game. Well, it's exciting times for women's football around the world, isn't it? Uh, Europe, Africa and uh, elsewhere too. Thanks very much, Stuart. Before we go on social media this week, asking who do you think will win the English Premier League? Uh, do send us a message with the new season here. Who do you think will be the champions and tell us why? You can post a comment on our Facebook page. That's Planet Sport Football Africa. Or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. What's your prediction? Who do you think is going to win the Premier League this time around and why? From me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening, and Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.